Welcome, everyone. <clears throat> uh, this talk, like the last talk, is kind of an overview of the fourth foundation before we get into some of the specifics. Uh, but I'd like to start off as a kind of preamble, if I could, uh, because I want to talk a little bit about being actively engaged in the practice rather than a kind of passive observer of the. We've all been to church and we realize that many of us can listen to sermons and be a very passive uh, listener and, and not really be touched by. I mean, you, perhaps you'd be touched by the words like you would with any with any words, but uh, what this requires is more from us than that. And uh, I really want to encourage us coming forward uh, within that. Uh, so an active engagement of the teaching <clears throat> means a few things. One is that we're no longer, we're mature enough that we're no longer looking outside of ourselves for the answers uh, or uh, for the solutions uh, to the problems of our uh, internal uh, uh, struggles. Uh, we're no longer blaming life uh, for the conditions that have formed around us. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a maturing, really. It's a maturing of understanding that allows us to say, okay, you know, I've got to take responsibility for what's going on here and really involve myself within it. Uh, get to know it, not as a, an aloof observer, as I mentioned, but as an active participant here. We're not a scientist studying objectively uh, a science project. We're the su science project. We're not the, um, uh, the, the passive listener. Uh, we're actively involved in what it is that's going on. And so I want you to throw yourself into the experiment rather than having some kind of distance or aloofness from it. And the other component of what it means to be actively engaged is uh, an understanding of what we bring to our practice. And I, I don't just mean that in a positive sense because uh, many of us uh, have various reasons and motivations for being here. Uh, many things can motivate us to get uh, involved in meditation. Uh, probably the most frequent is an egoic satisfaction or an egoic longing for uh, something that seems to be missing in my life, some serenity or peace, uh, some end of struggle or lack of suffering. And so initially we all get involved from an egoic perspective. There's no, uh, uh, there's no um, evaluation about that. It's simply the way most of us enter. <clears throat> uh, but very soon, uh, our meditation practice can't be sustained solely by that motivation. It needs a further investment of our energy. And uh, the next level of motivation, after we have sort of played out the egoic chip, is a sense or a yearning for what is true in life, what's true. And it, it's a deeper yearning than simply to uh, get something from meditation, but it's a, it's a calling that uh, asks us to go below the level of our normal discursiveness and see if there's something more fundamental 
about life than what we have been, what we have believed to be. And so it's, it's the willingness to sort of scratch beneath the surface and to ask questions which were not legitimately authorized on a different, from a different motivation, but now become our passion. And so this is also the opening of the heart. The heart begins to have a central pull and a central longing that is satisfied through knowing what is true. And then there is another uh, motivation that clicks in uh, once that has been established, what is true uh, and meaningful, what is real in life. The next level of motivation, which makes us even more engaged in the practice, is to sort of understand uh, what we are, the essence of our own sense of aliveness, existence, and uh, to have some uh, sense that the fruits of spiritual, of the spiritual journey really have to move through each of these motivating uh, gates uh, for there to be uh, fulfillment. And it doesn't mean that uh, we, uh, uh, that once we pass through a gate, it doesn't repeat itself many times. It certainly does. Many of us, many of us just sit down in the morning and we just want some relief, which is fine. You know, that there's not a, a evaluation or a judgment about any of this. Nobody's doing anything wrong, regardless of where we're motivated to look. But what I ask is not to stop at whatever motivates us. Don't arrest our, uh, the essence of meditation upon your motivation. Uh, because it's, only, it's a limited, it's often a very limited motivation, a very mi- limited response uh, to what the meditation can actually show us. <clears throat> and to keep moving this thing, uh, so it, we start off with the egoic need and that gets satisfied and we say, okay, that's enough, I've gotten from meditation what I wanted, and that can be the end. Uh, but if we ask, as we're receiving it, whether it truly uh, accomplishes the serenity that I long for, whether my, the relaxation I've obtained is the serenity and deep sense of settledness and stillness that my heart longs for, that's a question that will pull the motivation down into the next level. And then we just keep sinking with it. Uh, and I might say that it doesn't really, you know, if, if meditation is your focus and me, uh, primary spiritual practice, fine, but yoga can do the same thing. You just, you just can't be satisfied with, with a, a body that feels good. Uh, if that's all you want from it, then that's all it will give you. But uh, yoga in its essence means union, and to find that union means you have to travel much deeper than the superficial. So I just want to encourage people not to just come here on Tuesday nights and listen to a sermon, go home and think that they've spent a fruitful evening. There's a homework assignment back there that's actually more important than the sermon itself, and that is that it gets us involved and engaged in actually fleshing out what the experience and direction of what we talked about tonight is supposed to, is, is pointing. Okay, so that being said, uh, I want to move into the fourth foundation and look at this with a little more uh, time than we had last talk. Uh, 
Uh, and up front, may I say that this is a challenging, uh, it's a challenging talk. All of these talks are challenging in some way. It needs your patience. You may not understand it, or you may think this is way over my head. It doesn't matter, you see, if you're just patient. If you sit by the fire, no matter how wet the log is, it'll eventually start burning. So no matter where we are or where we think we are in our beginning, middle, or experienced range, sit by the fire and just listen and let yourself wonder and not get discouraged. Discouragement doesn't help. Wonder does. Say, wow, what is he talking about? That's interesting. Rather than, oh, I can't do that. You see? We can go either way on that. So to keep this thing alive within us, even if it isn't understood, we can keep it alive. Now, uh, let me just move right into the definition of the fourth foundation. And I was ordained by a Burmese uh, meditation master uh, many, many years ago, Mahasi Sayadaw. And uh, someone asked him uh, what the third foundation of mindfulness was. And he said, that's noticing what is arising within awareness, what we've been talking about. And then somebody asked him, what's the definition of the fourth foundation? And he says, seeing the effects of what's arising upon awareness. So I, I don't have any, um, I don't have any uh, difficulty with that. I don't think it goes quite far enough. And so I want to establish my own definition. And that is, uh, the fourth foundation is uh, learning to abide in awareness without a story. And using discernment, which is intrinsic or natural to awareness, when a story does arise. Okay, so we have gone now into very uh, subtle waters. And just to refresh your uh, your um, overall view of the first four foundations. The first foundation located us firmly in form. It got us somewhere. It settled us down enough so that we knew where we were, didn't it? Oh, I'm in my body. And with some examination and some interest, some curiosity, the body certainly opened up beyond our initial view of what it is. And there are many subtleties of the body which can be explored endlessly in this foundation uh, and is or can be a very complete practice in and of itself as long as you incorporate the other three foundations within this foundation. So each foundation can be a complete foundation, can be a complete practice, but you have to invite the three other three foundations within that foundation to make it work. The second one, now that we've got ourselves located, because if you have noticed uh, much of your life, you don't know where you are, do you? Uh, you aren't located on any coordinates. You don't know where you are. You're, where, you're wherever your thoughts tell you you are. That's where you are. And so to, to find a place where you actually come back to and know where you are is enormous. It's enormous. And then the second foundation starts to show us how form, the, we've exaggerated the importance of form. The first foundation got us in the form, and we made that very special. Many of us love our bodies or are learning to love our bodies, and 
we just like to dwell there and it's comfortable and all that. But the second foundation is meant to pull the uh, psychic energy of investment out of that form a little bit. It shows us that the form we've invested in, let us say the body, is really a, an attachment to a particular feeling that we have about it. And that each object that arises in our, in our life is invested in by the mind. The mind has a certain, uh, li like it either likes it or doesn't like it or doesn't care about it, and that's invested within each object. The object doesn't hold that, the mind holds that. So we are essentially projecting out our likes to objects, and then we say we love you, when actually the love is in us, right? So it's a, it's a very, um, interesting uh, way to begin to divest energy from form. Form doesn't mean as much after we've looked at how the investment process goes. And so that the second foundation in some ways uh, extracts energy from the first. Yes, I'm in my body and it's very nice to dwell here, but it's also just this. It's also based upon the whole conditioning reference that I have given it. It doesn't contain intrinsic or intrinsic worth. It's whatever I say it is, whatever I like about it or not like about it. And so it infuses its own, uh, its own mental response onto it. Then the third foundation uh, is simply uh, It's, it's the, it takes all reaction away at all and leaves us empty. The third foundation is simply the willingness to still, I, still ourselves with whatever is arising in mind and not follow it or make anything out of it. So it, again, it's it's a further subtlety or a, a, a more ephemeral quality to the meditation now in which I'm beginning to see that not only do I infuse objects with worth through my projected response to those objects, but when I'm quiet, the distance, the sense of separation and duality gets very amorphous. It gets very funny, it gets blurred and that I can't say the world is out there and I'm in here uh, when I'm as quiet as I need to be and just in my noticing and just allowing things to be seen. Now the fourth foundation is inviting, abiding in that formlessness itself. In the third foundation there is still a little bit of me who is trying to be quiet to whatever it is that was arising so that I would have non-judgmental. The space was still contained within my skin. And the practice seemed to be very internal still, where I am uh, having a relationship with my mind and I'm being quieter, so I'm, I'm a little less described, a little less determined in there. But for the most part, we're pretty much still there contained within it. The fourth foundation is the loss of, of boundaries entirely. The fourth foundation is abiding in that formlessness. 
It's a figure ground switch in the sense that the emphasis uh, in the third was in the states of mind being seen. Right? So that was the states of mind were what, what was important and I was seeing them. And the fourth, the emphasis is on seeing rather than what is being seen, is on the formlessness of awareness itself rather than what awareness is seeing. Now that's very subtle, you see, and I don't want to lose you on this. And that's the reason that most, I believe, that most interpretations of the fourth keep you looking at the objects. Look at the hindrances, look at the seven factors, look at this, because that, that's easier. It's easier to look at form than to acknowledge the formless. And so they, nobody that I know of fully understands what that means to, to uh, the difference really between the third and the fourth unless it's interpreted to be that we're abiding in the formlessness rather than using the formlessness to see in more subtle ways. So now we're entering, a, it's a very, um, uh, we've, crossed, we've crossed a boundary here. We've crossed a dimension. We're not, this is now, we're out of skin. And when we're out of skin, we're lost. When the first foundation, we were very found, weren't we? We knew exactly where we were because we were in our skin. But the fourth foundation, we've lost our compass, so to speak. And so it's, it's a little more difficult uh, to orient ourselves to. Uh, but one of the questions that I love to ask for people who seem to get a little confused by the fourth foundation is, uh, is letting the love of being held enough? You see, when, you, when we're quiet enough to be able to feel or sense the awareness, we realize we're being held. And when we're being held, there's this feeling of being um, accepted isn't exactly the word, but being valued or being just, just, uh, just being true, just being uh, validated in some way. And that sense of being loved, really, perhaps for the first time. And you can feel it. it has to come, it can't come internally. And we try to make love occur internally through all sorts of mechanisms and practices and compassion practice or this practice or that practice. But we're, we fail in its completion because we really don't trust the love that we're generating because we really know ourselves deeper than this practice and we know we're not as lovable as we're trying to make ourselves to be. So there's always this doubt, right, in every practice that you apply. But when it comes 360, when it comes surrounds you, and it's not being beckoned, when it's not being encouraged, when it's not being uh, exercised, that it's just there, then there's this feeling of being held in love. And, there's, and we realize there's nothing wrong, perhaps for the first time, although we might have been told that many times. 
Now, in fact, we feel it. And so this, this fourth foundation really takes away ownership of our practice. So we're not actively doing. In fact, the more actively you do something, the more you'll be involved in the first three foundations. The first three foundations, for the most part, had various forms of activity and involvement in each of those foundations. And there's nothing wrong with being in uh, the first foundation or second or third foundation. But the, you might say one of the fruits of the, of the meditation is to become so quiet in oneself that oneself dissolves in terms of boundary and sees the form is that the form is being held all form is being held in formlessness and that's why at some point the investment in being mindful and trying to make ourselves uh, effortlessly effortfully aware effortfully aware fades away because the effort maintains a tension that keeps us internally ourselves, that keeps us internally in our skin, that keeps me, uh, the sponsorship, the sponsor of my own practice. And so that defines, the effort defines what I'm going to see. But when there is no effort, when we are looking at what pre-existed all of the turbulence and discursiveness when we really don't do anything this sense of not doing then we see or we feel or we sense this sense of primordial space or awareness which is um, extraordinary really extraordinary <clears throat> Now, many of us have had uh, experiences of that. And may I say it's a felt sense, the sense of awareness. I like the word felt sense. I was reading about focusing in the Tricycle magazine. I hadn't heard of this technique, but they use the word felt sense in a different kind of way, according to body. But I like it just as, a, as an expression for how one tones, tunes into the sense of awareness itself. You can't be aware of awareness. I'm so tired of hearing that instruction, aware of awareness. There's no aware of awareness. There's just awareness. If you're aware of awareness, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> this is, I mean, and we make it a practice. You make it a practice and, you're, and you've got yourself at best in the third foundation and at worst completely confused about whatever foundation you're in because you're trying to do it's if it's pre-existing you can't see it but it doesn't mean it isn't there isn't a felt sense of it so if you bring your attention back into one just just bringing it back in in and just feeling the felt sense of awareness And you go, oh, yeah, okay, so. And the more you relax into that felt sense, the more the awareness opens up beyond mindfulness. And the more the space, the dimension of awareness becomes accessible. And again, it's so uh, subtle that that's why 
it's constantly redefined in ways that people can get their hands around it. Like contemplation of the dharmas. That's one of the, contemplation of the dharmas makes it back into the third foundation from my point of view. Just contemplating the dharmas of life, whatever this. But then you're, the watcher is very much there, the sense of observing. And, but this is, this is I, I believe that Buddha was taking us completely out of it all. A transcendent moment. And as I was mentioning, many of us have had that. Many of us have had a sense of awareness in full blossom. And then we get pulled out of it through some, some thought, seem to get pulled out of it through some thought. And then we go back in and we come out of it and it's thrilling sometimes to get that feeling and it's energetic and we get a high from really sensing awareness and all of that. But at some point, you get tired of a partial life in awareness. Now comes what I think is the real heart of the fourth foundation. The fourth foundation just doesn't establish us in awareness. It works effortlessly to clean it up continually. You see, when one awakens, that's the beginning of the spiritual journey, not the end. All the mess that we live with, the way our minds getting, keep getting pulled back into a kind of discourse with itself, with a reactivity and a judgment and a, and a kind of uh, you know, separation, a feeling of separation, uh, that becomes... Uh, that becomes intolerable to the heart. The heart can't stand separation when it knows a transcendence. And so, but how do you work with it then? Because we've been taken away f out, we're out of it. So what do you do? You see, what, you see the quandary, you see the paradox? I, I'm pulled back into duality, but I can't do a thing about my, the, the, the problem I'm having in duality. Because as soon as I do, I'm more dualistic than I ever was. What do I do? What do I do? That's where this fourth foundation comes in. And it's, and, you know, first let me say that I don't think you'll find this definition in any of the other places you read. Or, you, know, you, have to, you have to take what your own, your own insights have shown you in practice and apply it to the Buddha's words. Don't rely upon uh, uh, 2,000 years of editorializing and commentary to show you the wise way. So when you start dusting this stuff off, it starts making much more sense than if you read somebody else's logic about what these things mean. So I'm encouraging you not to just settle with my words, but to use your own, your own description. That's what I mean by engaged practice. So once we get a sense of this and once we get a sense of the traps that are inherent in this process of transcendence from form to formlessness and that we're no longer satisfied with momentary experiences of formlessness then we're interested in 
clearing it out, clearing up the mess. Let's just figure out what's going on here. That discernment comes from awareness. That's what's so beautiful about this thing, is it doesn't need you. It doesn't need you even in its finest hour, you know. And so there's a quality, there's a quality of awareness that is discerning, intelligent. Now that, I'll I'll frame it differently. It's, uh, it's, Affectionately curious. Affectionately curious. What, 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 what is going on here? That, the affection, curiosity. Now curiosity, I need to say this, a curiosity can come from one of two sources. It can come, there can be a mental curiosity, which is our secondary intention to gain life. When, we're, when we have found ourselves Uh, separated from life, then the best we can do is try to access as much enjoyment and pleasure around us uh, for our sense of completion and worth. That's the the way the mind works. That's the way it thinks. It thinks dualistically, so it gathers things around it to provide its sense of worth. Okay, so so what does affectionate curiosity look like when it comes from the mind? Well, now this is not a judgment. It looks like trying to obtain knowledge, like being more learned. It looks like further study. And you know, what's this, what bird made that sound? It looks like that. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we all need that to be working for us. But that's not the affectionate curiosity of awareness itself. The affectionate curiosity of the primary intention, the intention towards wholeness of being, the affectionate curiosity of that looks like uh, the willingness to move into any difficulty to remove that obscuration uh, so that it no longer pulls me out of transcendent awareness into myself. At this point, transcendent awareness is much more prized than the sense of me being who I am. For a long period of time, who I am is more prized than awareness. I'd much rather be who I am and have moments of awareness. At some point, the scales tips, and you are much more interested, not you, but there's much more interest in uh, liberation, transcendent awareness, than there is in reforming our sense of self. Now I'm taking you out there, okay? So again, don't get discouraged. You're all working fine on this. I'm just showing you a direction. I'm just showing us where where we're going, you know, where this thing takes us. We're talking about the fourth foundation. I can't, I'm not going to bring it down so that it becomes uh, manageable because it's not manageable on that sense. It's not. And I think we do a disservice to the teaching when we try to make it so. So transcendent awareness is um, basically uh, the fourth foundation. 
Now, there's a beautiful image that a friend of mine, a, a colleague, Guy Armstrong, uses that I would like to use. And he's, he uses that. He says, now the sun, if you face away from the sun into outer space, all you see is black, don't you? You don't see the light of the sun. You're facing away from it. But if an object comes between you and the sun, you see that object. It lights up. The light has always been there, but when an object goes, moves in front of you, that's the only time you acknowledge the light. Because when it's gone, it's still shining, but there's nothing, it's not shining upon something, so it's seen as black. You see? That's very analogous to awareness itself. Awareness itself needs all of this in order for it to reflect back so that, we, that, that, so that there's something seen. It has an intelligence within that as well. So the intelligence sees what is seen and acts appropriately from, towards what is seen. There's a kind of way that we, we have relied so heavily on our sense of our own manipulation and our own internal responses that we don't believe that movement can happen from any source other than our volitional will. And so we're always operating from that sense of volitional will. But what this is asking us to do is to see the problem and just to be quiet with it, to see how awareness moves itself, how awareness moves the manifestation. Again, it's a figure ground switch. So how do we do that, you see? How do, we, how, do we, how do we get into this formlessness? Well, the entrance fee in entering the formlessness, formless, is the end of your narrative. That's the entrance fee. To get in, think of it now, when we were in the second foundation, when feelings were uh, corresponded to an object or an experience, that feeling was coming from us, and very quickly after that feeling came a whole dialogue in history about our life with that particular object based upon that feeling, and it got blown up into a lot of words and discursive thinking. <clears throat> So if we're going to go from form to formlessness, which is what the object was prior to us investing a lot of language into it and story about it, we have to go in reverse order. We have to start being quiet with things. And as we get quieter, the exact reverse happens. You, see, you still feel the feeling, the attraction or aversion towards the object, but it doesn't spin a tail. As soon as it no longer spins a tail, the feeling itself leaves. The feeling was part of the tail being spoken. And now there's the entrance into the formless. The entrance to the formless was, in, and was the willingness to give up our history, to give up our narrative. Now let me just stop there because you see, let me just arrest there for a moment. I know this is very difficult, 
But how much of us, how, I just want us to feel, and this is what I mean by an engaged practice, of how dependent we are on our history for our sense of purpose and direction and orientation and posture and attitude and everything. And it's, it's, the, most important, it's the most important component of our life, if we're honest. And yet it isn't even there. It's a thought. It's an implication. It's something that has been. So we're walking has-beens. <laughs> so let's at least, it doesn't, I'm not asking us to prematurely move beyond it, but let's just recognize how important it is to us. That's fair enough. Honesty, everything starts from honesty. And by just getting a sense, everywhere I look, I invest my history with onto whatever I see. And that I never allow anything to be other than what I know it to be. And so nothing ever, nothing ever can come around something because I'm defining it so that it's free of whatever holds it. Do you see? When I define something, it holds just that. And it doesn't let the formlessness be seen. But when I stop defining it and moving it and making it something, it becomes nothing. It was only my narrative, my story, my history that made it something. And if I'm willing to be quiet with it, it comes back into the fold of the whole, of the totality. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about discernment and this sense of, uh, this felt sense of awareness and this implicit knowing that awareness has. <clears throat> so we're no longer talking about what we see, we're talking about the ability to see. We're no longer talking about what we hear, we're talking about our ability to hear. So it's now total verb. So gone is the control. As soon as I apply control, I apply the brakes to the formlessness and it comes back into form. Anything I try to do about the form recreates more form. Me and the object get thicker and more dense in meaning, and more problematic. So we're on to something here. So we can only enter this thing through the loss of control, through the relinquishment of control. Letting intelligence move itself, as I was saying before, having, uh, entering the path of surrender. So that looks very different. That looks very different. Now when we look at discernment just as a force in itself, as an energy in itself, we notice two components of discernment. There's an active and a passive discernment. The passive discernment was 
very prominent in the third foundation. We were just sitting back, doing nothing, and allowing things to be seen. And much of meditation practice has that as, as a uh, culmination. is just, just seeing, just seeing, not adding anything to what's seen, just seeing. And the passive discernment, stay with me here, I know this is, it's, it's experiential, but you may get lost in the words. This sense of passive discernment, I become less important because I'm not doing anything about what is being discerned. And so I am not as prominently a part of my meditation. Again, when I mentioned uh, engaged practice, I mentioned various motivations. If your motivation is egocentric, you're never going to get to that place. You're going to keep yourself very self-centered in your practice and never come to the place where you're willing to do nothing because doing nothing doesn't allow you any self-investment. So it's really at a higher motivation that these, this next this sense of passive discernment comes. The sense of passive discernment is simply allowing the mind to be as it is. The hardest thing to do in meditation is to do nothing. Many people say, I, when I say, what do you do in your meditation? Oh, I don't do anything in my meditation. I would love to go in that mind and see what they're really doing. <laughs> I dare say there would be considerable activity in there and they're doing nothing. But one of the things, one of the one of the ways that it becomes extraordinarily important in our spiritual growth, this passive discernment helps beyond anything else, is that it begins to show us, because we're doing nothing, we're less involved, we're less uh, distinct, and as forms arise within that discernment, that passive discernment, it's, it's known that we are not that form. Because we're not doing anything about it, there's no projection onto it. There's no infusion of self onto object. And the self is very um, amorphous, it's very spacious, and there's a recognition at some point that as objects arise in mind, in consciousness, and nothing is done about them, that those forms that we see, the thoughts that we hear, the emotions we feel, etc., etc., this is not me. So discernment, although passive, has an enormous part to play in the resolution of thinking that we are form. Have I lost you all? 10% of you are shaking your head, so I'll go with a 10%. It also shows, so passive discernment also shows us lots of things. It shows us a greater sense of interconnectedness within silence. It shows us where awareness has been hiding or we have hidden from it, better said, how we've obscured it. 
as we become quieter and quieter, it becomes more and more apparent and a, as a felt sense within us. And it becomes larger and it becomes, uh, and one of, the, one of the beautiful qualities of passive discernment is that you start valuing it extraordinarily. You go, my God. So the mind stays within reach of all this, believe me, and so it still has its uh, human impact. But you say, my God, you know, what I, why have I been missing this? Where have I been? Well, it's so accessible. I've just been making so much noise that I've looked away at the noise rather than what holds the noise. It's really that amazing. It's more amazing than that. It's dumbfounding. You simply can't believe what you've done to make your life seem worthwhile when w really where the value of life is is in a completely different direction. And that shakes us. That is very, um, it can be very uh, difficult. But it doesn't change the value of what we see. We go, oh, wow. And in the heart now is a throbbing organ, and I'm talking about the spiritual center of us, now becomes so... Uh, so powerful in its reach and in its uh, and its uh, resolve that this passive discernment begins to take on an active discernment. Now active discernment, I said there are two types of discernment, passive and active, both of which are coming from awareness, not from not from us. This active discernment has a much more a probing sense about it. It brings forth that sense of astonished curiosity, loving curiosity, affectionate curiosity is what I said, affectionate curiosity, into anything that tries to obscure the availability of awareness. And so it looks like investigation. It looks like questioning. It looks like, what's going on here? That's the way it shows up. Now, this is where I really want to caution, because I'm going to spend a few weeks talking about investigation and inquiry and questioning and all of that. And some of you say, I, I don't get this at all. Is that just, from, that just analytical? Is that just me? No. We're not talking about the analysis that we usually go through when we think, when we go in and we start churning the wheels of our, of our, our thoughts. It's not that at all. It's a natural movement of the heart towards feeling limited. And it goes, what's going on here? What's this? What's happening here? It wants to uncover and what it is, why it is that I have given away the most important thing, which was access to this awareness. It wants to know what's going on. What's, the, what's, what's happening here? And so it starts looking 
uh, at life in terms of that. So, so you, it, it can look very, it, it looks, I'm sure that all of you have had moments of this investiga investigation, uh, but uh, you may not re have recognized it. Like, a moment of insight is really a moment of investigation. We go, whoa, you know, I've given myself a way to thoughts. What's, what is this? What am I thinking about all the time? What's so important? A thought is not going to ask that itself, that question, you see. It's coming from something else. A thought isn't going to say, why am I thinking this thought? It just thinks the thought. Something else has got to ask that question. Anytime you ask a question about something that's a given part of you, you can be sure that it's not a given part of you. You can be sure it's coming from something else. And so this sense of awareness is always playing through. We're just claiming ownership of it. When emotion comes up, you know, just the willingness to feel the emotion, to hold the emotion is this investigation. The one that's, oh God, this emotion. There's a lot of discursive thinking within that. And it's being confused. It's being, uh, the uh, discursive thinking is being confused with the discernment. But the discernment is there. It just isn't clear enough to be able to, to really see it free of all the discourse that's around it. But there will be a time when, the, when questions will just flower in you, naturally. Just because you, you feel that if you don't know that, something is being deprived. You're being deprived of something vitally important. And I don't mean knowledge. I mean some bit of information that would free you from whatever seems to be a boundary in that moment. So I want to leave us there because we're going to, I'm going to um, move this into um, a, a line and direction that I think we can all get our hands on. But I wanted to give this overview. And I didn't want uh, to make it elementary. I wanted to show you how deeply these foundations take us. And I don't want to make them manageable, because this one is not manageable. Not by you, it's not. At some point, we have to surrender to this thing. And so this calls that surrender forward. So if you didn't get anything out of it but wonder, bless you. Just don't get discouraged. There's nothing special about anyone, including the Buddha. There's, no, there's nothing that has been experienced or stated tonight that isn't accessible to each one of us. If we're patient, if we are resolved, if what motivates us is an engaged practice and not a passive listening, if what we want out of this thing is to be transformed, not to be just fender repair. Okay? Okay, good. Can we sit for a moment or two? When I was uh, uh, putting this talk together this afternoon, I thought, oh, oh, just give me the power to translate to these to people what I want to say, and I I felt like it. 
I don't know, when the words started coming, they didn't feel like they were um, manageable in some way. But be that what it may, sometimes it's useful just to hear about the nature of the universe and just to love it, just to love that. We're starting an adventure here, each of us. Wherever we are on that adventure, that journey, doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Everyone that walks makes it. Just don't stop walking. And the dedication and the resolve grows from one thing and one thing only, our willingness to be honest at every step along the way. Okay, so if there are any questions or comments. <laughs> yes. So, um, first let me say that was an incredibly beautiful moving arm. Thank you. And um, so I've experienced this difference between ownership of what you're writing and not ownership. Yes. I've attributed that to the strength of my mindfulness. Yes, yes. Yes, very good question. Uh, question is, um, well, she loved the Dharma talk. <laughs> I can't remember the rest of it. <laughs> um, no, she said the, the sense of ownership and non-ownership uh, in, in the practice. And she always thought that that was the result of the strength of our mindfulness. Well, uh, it's, I, would, I would want to reframe that a little bit. It's really where you're investing your energy in that moment is in uh, the conversation about what it is that's going on. And if that holds more enticement uh, than quiet, than stillness, then that object will contain uh, your, its story, its narrative, along with it. And that feels like ownership. If we, no matter what, now listen, because this is really important, and I was part of this talk, but I forgot to say it. Throughout this fourth foundation, it drives me insane, is it says, okay, when, notice when there are hindrances, notice when there aren't hindrances, notice when there are seven factors, notice when there aren't seven factors. Noticing the hindrance is not important. What's important is that you see that there's another dimension here outside of that hindrance. That awareness isn't sleepy. Awareness isn't doubting. Awareness isn't desiring. Awareness isn't aversive. That instead of trying to do something about the hindrance, which is the engaged workability, that keeps us locked into the hindrance as being a hindrance, no matter what you do, if you're doing something about it, it'll never go away. That's it. Now you can work the rest of your life to prove that point or just take it from me and move on. 
But that's the truth. But if you say, okay, hindrance arising, awareness is, discerns that there's sleepiness, let's say, but is awareness sleepy? Now the investment I would have given to the conflict and argument with sleepiness, oh, what am I doing being sleepy? I'm sleepy all the time. This is ruining my practice. All of that, that's the ownership. Suddenly, if you just say, okay, is awareness sleepy? Now the, the energy that would have gone into the argument goes into the discernment, doesn't it? And you can see, you can see immediately that the awareness isn't sleepy at all. Now, that has nothing to do with the power of mindfulness. That has to do with what, where you're investing your own power. You see? So, that's what I would ask you to do as long as we're in this fourth foundation. In the misery of your sitting, is awareness miserable? If you go any other direction, you will be miserable for the rest of your sitting. You'll struggle and you'll be miserable and you'll try to gain more awareness. What I need is more awareness, more mindfulness. Let me try to, you know, and it'll be forever. It's forever like that. And that's the formula mixture. I'm taking this beyond formula. If Buddhism was a formula, it wouldn't be worth the page it was written on. This is, we're, we're shifting paradigms. Everything that worked in one paradigm, it does not work in this paradigm. And we keep trying to make the paradigm shift work from the logic and strategies of our former dimension. You see? But now you know your way. Doesn't matter where you are on that way. You will not be fooled any longer. And once you know that, you have the secret. So you can listen to various people, talks, and you can know which paradigm they're speaking from. And many t teachers talk from the paradigm we're in, and they'll talk about strat strategies from that paradigm. And, and some, and many teachers will talk about from a different paradigm. So you pick it. Pick which one you need. Sometimes you need the strategies and all of that kind of stuff to... I don't know why, but we seem to need it for a long period of time. Until we're willing to be quiet. Really, it's when, when are we willing to be quiet? When are we willing to be quiet? We don't get anything out of quiet. That's what's so troublesome about quiet. It doesn't give me a degree. You know, it doesn't give me anything. So maybe that's why we're so noisy. Because it keeps giving us something. Accomplishment. You should have seen how well I slept, I went through meditation last time. I wasn't sleepy at all. I'm never sleepy anymore. I'm over that hindrance. 
So uh, the, the question, waking up yourself? Uh, well, yeah, when I switch places with some other person. Oh, I see. So is that right. a type of bravery that it takes? No, 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 no. So the question is about the fourth foundation and the narrative that um, fosters the sense of self uh, and just being willing to relinquish that narrative. When you relinquish the narrative, what you have is discernment. You see, the reason that we don't relinquish the narrative is we think all of our strength and force and understanding comes from what we say about to ourselves about the experience that's going on. That's what keeps us so jabbery, right? So we don't trust anything other than our own vocals, our own knowledge, our own intellect. So because we never test the waters of another possibility, it never shows up. It doesn't mean you lose your knowledge base. It doesn't mean you can't you aren't a professional in whatever way you are now or not. It doesn't mean that you forget where you live. It doesn't mean that at all. You just don't rest upon that as your primary location for security. What you rest on, well, you don't rest on anything. <laughs> you, rest, you rest on, you, there's a sense in you of having experienced discernment again and again that there's just faith in that. Now, so what arises from the loss of control of one's own life using one's knowledge base is faith, faith, faith and discernment, faith that this thing is on its own. The universe is blowing, it is moving, it is creative, it has worlds and a hundred billion galaxies and there's nobody back there going like this. <laughs> What, if it's doing all of that, you can, you little dot, you can let yourself go too. <laughs> Ajahn Chah says, I love this, he said, at some point all you do is recognize the creative force of the universe. Like, wow, this whole thing Nothing's going backwards. Everything's going forwards here. It's all creating. Something new is happening every instant. And we have the luxury, the privilege, of seeing it. Why do you want to mess with it? <laughs> seeing it is astounding. Isn't it? Yeah, but they didn't get the temperature right today. It should have been... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how we, we do That's it. There's the problem. That's the problem. That's <laughs> so don't worry that you're going to be... See, I mean, emptiness always leaves traces. The word leaves traces. I don't like the word because I think it leaves traces. It's scary. Who wants it? But it isn't empty. If you want to know, if you want to come back in the form, 
believe me, Mara is sitting on your shoulder. He'll, he'll oblige you right away. All you have to do is want it and you're back. Right? So this, you can see that the movement into this is a, it's another step of maturity where you don't really want to manifest yourself anymore. Just to hear what I'm about to say, you have to be mature, so. But this species has not been successful in any form. It's time we changed into a new paradigm in which we're not forcing life from our species point of view. Let's see what we're like as a blend rather than as a predominant force. And this is the only way. This is the only way. So, uh, Next week, we'll have a discussion on this topic. That's what I call engaged practice, is willing to come to the discussions too. Even if you don't like sitting there with three people who you're smarter than. <laughs> if you don't get anything out of it, you just got that out of it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.